Huh, I didn't realize That's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think you need to come over, stand in my to shoes. Hi, friends. Julie here. I've got another favorite conversation for you from Top of Mind's live radio days. We are a weekly podcast now, as you know. And in a few more weeks, we'll have some brand new episodes for you. But in the meantime, I've been dying to share this conversation. So here's the story. One of the things I do to relax is cook. But I'm an experimenter. I like to figure out how to combine random things into a dish, whatever's ripe in the garden or leftover in the fridge. Sometimes I'll use a recipe as a starting point, but I'm always swapping out seasonings and ingredients because I don't have the one thing that I need and I don't want to go to the grocery store, so I'll just try this instead. Now, occasionally, maybe more often than occasionally, it's been a flop and ends up straight in the trash. But those failures have become really rare for me lately, and the interview we're about to hear is the reason why. Back in 2017, I spoke with Samin Nasrat, live on the radio. She is the chef behind a cookbook called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Her whole thing is that if you master those four essential elements of good cooking, you can succeed in the kitchen whether you're following a recipe or not. Now, this was a revelation to me. Plus, Samin Nasrat was just so down-to-earth about food. She was a blast to talk to. If you saw her Netflix series, which is also called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, you'll know what I mean. So here's our conversation. Bon appetit. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This all began for you with a meal that you ate at Chez Panisse. Tell us about that. (laughs) So um, my family's from Iran, and I grew up in Southern California, and I moved to Berkeley to attend college. And during my orientation week, someone mentioned that there was a famous restaurant in town. And um, to me, this didn't really register because this was 1997. And, you know, there was just not a celebrity chef culture like there is now. And so I grew up eating delicious home-cooked food and, you know, sometimes pizza and Chinese food and Mexican food. So I really didn't have a point of reference for what a famous restaurant or a famous chef might might be like. So this... um, sort of information went in one ear and out the other for for the first minute. And then um, my second year of school, I fell in love, and my boyfriend was from San Francisco. And so we spent a lot of time eating at his favorite restaurants in the Bay Area, and he had always wanted to go to Chez Panisse. So we saved our money. We saved $220 over the course of seven months, um, and we made a reservation, and we went to go eat at this restaurant. And... Uh, you know, I was 19 years old. I was wearing a denim dr- skirt. <laughs> and uh, you know, This we is the kind of place young. where you have to get a reservation years in advance. And... Yeah, a, mo- a month to the day, you have to call and wake up at 9 a.m. and make a reservation. And so, you know, we were definitely, I would say, fish out of water. Um, but they were all really, really nice to us. And And this meal was really inspiring and beautiful. And like I said, I grew up eating really great food, but... Um, So, you know, to me, it was delicious, and that was really special, but I think what was extraordinary about the experience was this feeling of being cared for and um, being attended to, and there was a way where they just sort of anticipated our every need and brought us water and bread and refilled the butter and, you know, sort of whisked away any dirty plates, and it just felt so, it felt like being in someone's home where you were being, you know, really loved, and um, that was really amazing, and the dessert was chocolate souffle and the um, server brought the souffle and she said oh you know have you had souffle before would you like me to explain how to how to eat it and I said no please tell me and she said well um, 
you have to poke a hole in it with your spoon and then you pour this accompanying raspberry sauce in and that way every bite will have sauce with it. So I did that and she said, oh, well, how is it? And I said, oh, I was like, it's really, really good, but you know what would make it even better? (laughs) (laughs) Says the 19-year-old non-chef. I I, I just (laughs) didn't know that that was a very rude thing to do. And and so, and I was being completely honest. And so um, I said, you know, it would be so delicious with a glass of cold milk. And, you know, like a you, warm chocolate chip cookie, cold milk, warm brownie, cold milk. Mm-hmm. It seemed like completely sort of natural pairing to me. But what I didn't understand at the time was that in fine dining, you know, to have milk after 10 a.m. is sort of considered uncouth or it's, it's like what babies do. And so, you know, and so um, she sort of, I think, found that charming. And so she mm-hmm. went and brought, brought me milk. And she also brought us each like a taste of dessert wine to sort of teach us the accompany the like refined accompaniment. <laughs> here's what here's what adults do. Yeah. <laughs> well, and what's really fascinating about this is that you you were a writer, you were an English major, right? So you mm-hmm. you go home and you write this letter to to was it to Alice Waters, the chef? Yeah, though? <laughs> it was, I mean, I didn't know any better, but I was so enchanted. So I and I always worked through college. I had a work study job before this, so I, I knew I wanted to work there. So I wrote this letter saying I've never worked in a restaurant, but I would really love to work here. You know, we had this really inspiring meal. Please hire me. And so she it. did. Yeah. And then I brought it in and the um, woman doing the hiring was the woman who had brought me the souffle and she remembered me. And I think she was very desperate. Mm. And so she said, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> so I started the next day. As a, as a server or a busser on as the front of the house, as they say. Uh, but before long, you, you just sort of talked your way into the kitchen, it sounds like. There was a lot of persistent begging. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that became your apprenticeship then, uh, the place that you learned from. First, your first exposure to uh, to cooking, to to the to the kitchen, to a chef's life, right? But but we should say that that the the menu at Chez Panisse is very complicated because it changes literally every day depending yeah. on what's in season. So, what was the learning curve like for you, and in in what ways did that kind of lay the foundation for for this book that you've written? It was a pretty brutal learning curve. Um, because the menu changes every day, I might might be taught to do something one day, and then the next day it's a completely irrelevant task. And so there was a way where I every day I was a beginner, you know, and that's kind of a beautiful thing in retrospect, but in the moment it was really difficult. And um, and the way the menu meetings work is you come in for your shift, and the chef describes you know his or her vision for the meal, and then assigns each cook a dish, and everybody gets up and goes into the kitchen and starts making it. But one day everything might be, you know, from Tuscany, and the next day it might be from Provence, and the next day it might be from Spain. So there, there was this way that everyone sort of had this um, facility with so many different cuisines and so many different kinds of cooking, and I didn't know anything. And so they had told me, go home and read cookbooks. They, they gave me this long list. But, you know, I couldn't even tell the difference between parsley and cilantro. So I, I really knew nothing, and I was sitting at the table with really great chefs, and it was kind of mind-boggling to me that they would just get up and go cook and never refer to a, a recipe or a cookbook or never ask what temperature the oven should be or how many minutes something should cook for or, you know, how many cups of something to use. It was just this very um, – it was so different than what I was doing at home at night, which was reading these books that had all these specific steps. So it just, I, there was a huge gap of knowledge and I didn't really know how to traverse that gap. 
And during that time, you you started on your own to come up with some these elements, the salt, fat, acid, heat concept. It's funny. Uh, tell us what happened when you when you told it to one of your chef friends, like, hey, yeah. I've got this great idea. <laughs> I felt like I really had, it was like a beautiful mind moment that I had stumbled <laughs> upon. I felt like I had unlocked this pattern of realizing what everyone was doing and how they were cooking. And I came to the chef, my mentor, and I said, oh, I figured it out. It's salt, fat, acid, heat. And he just looked at me. He was so unimpressed. He said, oh, yeah, we all know that. <laughs> that's what we all use, of course. You know, but, that's what all good cooks do. But then on your, uh, for, you know, to your, in your defense, nobody had said it to you. I mean, yeah. why don't they start you on that, right? So I know. I felt so, really betrayed. I was, <laughs> I was like, if you all knew this, how come no one told me a year ago, you know? <laughs> yeah. But so you've written the book. Thank you very much for the rest of us. It truly is enlightening. And we're going to dive right in. But before we do, I just want to note that, that there, it's a it's a different book than a typical cookbook. It's a, it's a it's more casual, I would say. Uh, and you don't have any beautiful, glossy pictures to show me what I'm aspiring to. It, there are really charming, whimsical, uh, whimsical illustrations by Wendy McNaughton. Why, why don't you give me pictures so that I can compare what I'm going to create to what you've uh, done? You know, at, uh, from the first moment that I knew I was going to write this book, I just knew in my gut that photos wouldn't be the right thing, even though I love beautiful food photography, because, precisely because of what you just said, that it's, you know, it's really aspirational. And having worked on a lot of photo shoots for magazines and stuff, I know that a lot of work goes into making those pictures perfect. And so many people and the perfect lighting and the perfect photographer and food stylists and prop stylists and so, and a masterful chef, you know, and um, it felt very disingenuous in a way for me to sort of put this very representational image of what something looks like at its most perfect, ver- what its most perfect version might look like in a book that's trying to teach you looseness and um, a willingness to sort of make mistakes and learn your way and stumble your way through to good cooking. And so I didn't want you to have to compare. And I also wanted you to feel free to use whatever you had on hand. You know, maybe I give you a recipe for frittata with greens and I use spinach and you have chard and that's okay. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, everything doesn't have to be exactly the same. Once you understand what a role each ingredient plays in a, in a dish, you can change it to your whims. I love where at a certain point you talk about how how we feel like cooking recipes is is linear. You have to go A, B, C, D, E. You move down. There's like a very precise order and you see it more like a web and Mm -hmm. you have all of these interconnected pieces and tweak one here and you have to know how it's going to affect everything else in this connection. Uh, But and understanding these four anchors, right? You've got your salt, your fat, your acid and your heat is is really what uh, what ties that web together. Yes, absolutely. I think that those are sort of the... I mean, I'm not an expert in spiderwebs, but <laughs> say a spiderweb had four sort of base, um, basic, you know, really strong threads. Those are what, what keep it going, you know, what keep it all connected. And then everything else sort of you can, you can create the designs as you wish. So salt, uh, Chef Nasrat, <laughs> why is it so essential for, for things that you don't want to have taste salty? I mean, the point of salt is so stuff tastes salty, right? Not exactly. To me, I think the right amount of salt is just before something's salty. So it's the maximum sort of pushing the flavor to, to its, to its uh, maybe highest, <laughs> highest um, manifestation of itself without ever tasting salty. And so what salt does in our food is it enhances flavors and it, makes, it, it basically makes flavors more available to us to taste and to, and to smell. And smell is such a big part of taste. And so um, using the right amount of salt 
really will just bring out the the nature the, of of something. You know, so a carrot that's properly salted will taste really carroty. <laughs> and, huh. uh, <laughs> How does that work? How does it work? Well, um, there are, there are several different mechanisms at work, but one of them that I find really interesting, it's like, like if you imagine a slice of a tomato, and if you season it with salt and you let it sit for a few minutes, you'll see that the water has come out, and that um, and and you know you might even eat it side by side with another slice of tomato that you haven't salted, and you'll notice it's so much more flavorful. And part of what's happened is that the salt almost... Um, now, I'm not a scientist, so these aren't actual scientific terms, but this is how I understand it and how I like to explain it to people, is um, that the salt almost unlocks these aromatic molecules that are, that are inside everything, you know, and they make it... When you get to bite down, then all of a sudden your bite releases these aroma molecules and you're getting more of that tomato. You're getting more of that deliciousness, more of the, and also salt creates contrast. So suddenly the sweetness of the tomato is contrasted with salt and you just sort of get more. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask you to pick a recipe that you would use as a as an object lesson, something in your book that would oh. really teach us teach us the lesson of salt and how to use it correctly. And before we do that, I want to ask you about salting water. This was a revelation to me because we all know you're supposed to put a little salt in the pasta water. But I, I, it never occurred to me that I should be uh, very generously salting every basically every pot that I'm going to cook something in. Yes, and that, you know, is really, that was a big one for me, was learning about how much salt belongs in a pot of water, because I grew up, my mom doesn't, my mom is a really conservative with salt, and um, and so I didn't grow up really understanding that, and we had salt on the salt on the table with a salt shaker, which we always thought was very funny when our aunts and uncles added salt to the food, because we were like, why would you do that? <laughs> but then when I started cooking and, and using these massive pots in the restaurant, and people would just add it by the handful, I was shocked. You know, I couldn't believe that the food wouldn't taste really, really salty, but it really just tasted good. And so I started to learn that you know, most of the things that we drop into a pot of water to boil don't spend that much time in there. And so um, if you think of even just like a tender piece of asparagus, which has just come into season, it doesn't spend, you know, it can't, doesn't spend more than two or three minutes in the water. So you have to create a salty enough environment to allow the salt to really penetrate the asparagus so that it can be seasoned from within so that it's not just salt sitting on the outside on the surface so Mm. that you don't need to add the salt from the salt shaker instead every bite is seasoned all throughout which is so much more i think we've all probably had you know a piece of chicken or if you roast a chicken and you just sort of throw some salt on there and then throw it in the oven, maybe the skin tastes really brown and salty and delicious, but then the meat itself is bland. And so a big part of salting isn't always, the lessons aren't always about using more, it's about using it better and learning when and how to use it. So I think for me, probably one of the most revelatory lessons um, was understanding to salt meat in advance. And one of my favorite recipes in the book is... um, this marinated chicken, buttermilk marinated chicken that gets um, seasoned and marinated with buttermilk the night before so that the salt has plenty of time to go all the way inside. So you're just using the salt, 
Oh, so you season it, but then also there's the buttermilk to, yeah. to, to dissolve the salt and allow it to get through the skin. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And you could, there's another, I have, I love chicken so much. I put a lot of, I put many, many chicken recipes in there. So there's another one that really is just chicken and salt. And the same thing, you do it the day before. This one's actually pretty fun. It's called, um, I call it, I think I call it the crispiest spatchcocked chicken. Hmm. And spatchcocking is just a funny, funny word for removing the backbone and, and splaying a bird flat. Mm-hmm. And what I like about that is that, um, you get so much more browning on all of the skin because there's not sort of some skin hidden underneath. Now every all of the skin is exposed. So if you go ahead and salt that the night before and leave it in the fridge um, uncovered, the air that's circulating in your fridge will actually dry out the skin and help create a really, really crisp, crisp skin. And um, I had, you know, hundreds of readers help test the recipes for this book. So it was this really fun thing where we sent them out to people all over the world and, and they gave us their feedback so we could improve the recipes. And, uh, and one of the best comments I got on any, of the feed, on any of the feedback was about this recipe. It was a gentleman who'd received this recipe and neglected to read it the day before. So he just he forgot to salt his chicken in advance and he forgot to leave it uncovered in the fridge. So he was really nervous. So he got out his blow dryer <laughs> <laughs> and he blow dried the chicken for 45 minutes on cold air to dry out the skin. And he said it worked. He said it was really great. <laughs> but probably I wouldn't want to put that in the book. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, you got to love the uh, the willingness to um, to freelance, improvise. right? To improvise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fully there. And the guy, I'm, I, I'm forever grateful to that guy. Yeah. <laughs> now, so uh, before we move on from salt, uh, I think a lot of us have experienced wanting to get it right, wanting to have it be just the right amount of salt. And then not quite knowing and going too far, and then it feels like there's no coming back from the brink. Yeah, that happens to us all, and it certainly happens. It happened to me, I remember, and almost everyone I've taught, it happens to them. Once you start learning that you need to use a little bit more, then people start to get cavalier, you know, and then suddenly you've made this, like, pot of polenta that's inedible. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, there are some fixes. There are certain times when you could, um, you know, just make more of whatever you're making or maybe discard part of it and extend the rest with the ingredients that aren't salty. I don't usually think the answer is to serve something salty next to something unseasoned because your your (laughs) mouth knows, you know. Yeah. (laughs) But I also think it's okay, you know, it's just dinner. It's not the end of the world like you can throw it away and order a pizza and try again tomorrow it's it's kind of for me the what part of what i'm trying to give people is the courage to make mistakes and not beat themselves up you know we're not you guys aren't all professional cooks you're amateurs and amateurs make mistakes on the way to proficiency so um it's okay i still make mistakes all the time you know <laughs> yeah that's comforting to know and i think the thing i certainly learned from the first chapter on salt was just to have a little bit more confidence to but to think about the timing of it don't just you don't just add salt once uh during the course of your cooking and then that's it you know you maybe you put it in the water and then maybe you add a little bit during the time when you're you're seasoning your sauce but then you think about what's how your meat is also seasoned and kind of make sure that you it's always on your mind so yeah yeah Exactly, exactly. Speaking with Chef Samin Nasrat, who is author of a new, I, I don't even want to call it a cook, cookbook. There's a lot, there are a lot of great you can recipes call it in it. Cookbook. <laughs> it's called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. It's, it's mastering the elements of good cooking, which are those four things I just mentioned. And so we have just established, Chef Nasrat, that salt is a flavor enhancer. And when we get to the next chapter on fat, you write, food can only be as delicious as the fat with which it is cooked. Mm-hmm. So what is fat doing for flavor that salt? 
adult isn't doing? Oh, oh my gosh. Fat is maybe the most remarkable in some ways, you know, um, because it does a couple things. First of all, fat has this incredible capacity to actually carry flavor. In my mind's eye, it's little burrows, you know, <laughs> with flavor packs on their back. <laughs> and so, um, and, and, and that also goes back to those aroma molecules. It has this way of really transferring aroma molecules to a food that water doesn't, doesn't have the capacity to do. And so a really good way to imagine the difference is if you heat two pans side by side and you put a little bit of water in one and a little bit of olive oil in the other one and then add a little sliced garlic to each, and just sizzle it for a second and, or simmer it for a second, if you take the garlic out and taste that water, it will just taste sort of vaguely, I don't know, watery, maybe a hint of garlic. But if you take the garlic out and you taste that oil, that oil will taste really heavily perfumed, you know, and very garlicky and very savory. And so because the oil has this way of um, almost attracting the flavor molecules out of a food and then conveying that into your dish. And so if your olive oil that you're using is rancid or then your food's not going to taste good. Or if you want to make, I don't know, let's say you wanted to make um, a Japanese dish, but you made it with butter it wouldn't taste right because because that butter is defining the flavor. You know, it's at the base, and butter is not a Japanese fat. It's it's a fat from Western Europe, and and you know we use it here in Northern America. Lots of countries use it, but certainly not Japan. Mm. So, um, so yeah. what 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 is your uh, what what is your rule of thumb in deciding which fat to use when? Because sometimes fat. Sometimes oil or butter goes into the recipe. Sometimes it's what you cook the stuff in. Sometimes you put it on top at the end. Mm-hmm. How, how, how to even know where to start? I, I tend to have butter and olive oil, and I kind of just stick there because I'm yeah, a little I bit mean, worried. Those are the two good ones, right? Like those are the two go-tos that I think everyone should have at home for sure. And I think it helps to understand that fat plays three different roles in our cooking. And if you can identify the role that you would like your fat to play, then you can choose the right fat. And so the first role is, um, is that of a, being a cooking medium. And, you know, to, that's like one of those science words where you're like, what is that? <laughs> but I actually like to think of it as the, it's the intermediary between the heat source and the food. So when you put oil in a pan and you're going to, I don't know, fry a piece of fish, um, the oil isn't necessarily an ingredient in the dish. It's act, what it's doing is that oil can get very, very hot. And so that is what can allow your, the skin of the fish to become crisp and brown and delicious. But um, you don't have to eat that oil. You can leave that oil in the pan. So really what it is, the role that it's doing is helping you cook. It's an intermediary between the pan and the food getting really, really hot. So um, that, that one is one where maybe you want to use a neutral oil or something, you know, an olive oil. And then the second role, the second role that fat can play in a dish is of a main ingredient, which I like to think of as, you know, butter in a flaky pastry dough. It's, it's this main ingredient that has a role in there. It's one of two ingredients. And again, you want to choose, when you're choosing, going into ingredient territory is where you want to start thinking more, more closely about the flavor that it's really going to lend to a dish. And so, um, you know, I, I really love buttery pastries, buttery flaky things. I think that that's really delicious. It's a little bit harder to work with than shortening, but I think that the flavor rewards are worth it. And so I generally will lean toward butter in a pastry. And then the third and final role is just of a seasoning. And sometimes that's just a little drizzle of good olive oil on top of a piece of, you know, grilled, uh, grilled fish or um, a few drops of toasted sesame oil on top of a bowl of rice. 
and or even just a dollop of sour cream on top of a baked potato. And mm-hmm. so if you can identify, you know, the main reason why you're using each fat, you can help it can help you choose the right fat to use. What are some mistakes that you see people making with fat and cooking? Um, I would say probably the biggest one, uh, well, there's two sort of regular ones. One is that people don't preheat their pans and they don't preheat the fat that they add the food to. So it's really, really important to preheat your cooking pan so that, um, so that when you add your fat, especially if it's a nice bottle, like some nice extra virgin olive oil that you've paid, you know, not a little bit of money for, um, you know, to really do that thing justice. And so the the thing with oils and, and vegetable oils and olive oils in particular is that the more times and the more slowly the temperature ri- rises and falls, whether it's sun in your kitchen or your kitchen just getting warm, um, or again, just like gently the oil temperature coming up, the more chance it has to sort of um, grow rancid. So if you can do your oil justice by helping it come up to temperature really quickly and that means adding it to a pan that's been preheated. That's a way to get good flavor out of your oil. And then let that oil get hot for a second before you add your food. And that way, um, things won't stick as readily. Things will immediately start browning. Um, and you'll just get better textures on the, on the surface of your food. That's one, that's one thing I see going wrong a lot. And the second thing is, um, in America, and this is through no fault of our own, <laughs> Um, just the olive oil production industry is a really complicated industry with a lot of, you know, it's, it's a huge global industry with a lot of sort of sneaky people doing sneaky things. And, um, and I think a lot of the European producers of olive oil have recognized that Americans don't really have not developed, uh, developed a really, um, sophisticated palate for olive oil. So what they do is they ship a lot of the rancid oils to us here and because most people probably grew up eating rancid olive oil, that's what they actually have a, developed a nostalgia for. And so they don't even know they're cooking with rancid olive oil. And, but, but most of the oil that you can buy in a grocery store is probably either not, pure, not purely olive oil or, or probably rancid. And so it's really important to sort of get yourself to a specialty market, start becoming familiar with olive oils, and, um, and, and understand what a good olive oil tastes like because then – all of a sudden your entire dish will taste really good. Um, And one other funny thing is that sometimes people treat olive oil like they treat wine, which is to save it so that it will, you know, maybe get better (laughs) with age. But it's not that way. Olive oil has a shelf life of about 12 to 14 months. And so, and it's always produced in the fall um, when the olives are harvested. So look for a date on the label of your olive oil and it should be within, you know, the past year and hurry up and use it. Don't let it, don't let it sit. It will just, um, it will start tasting bad. I want you to talk us through two recipe lessons, if you would, uh, briefly, because I want, I, 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 something that illustrates the use of oil, the importance of oil as a cooking medium, as you were describing, but also one that talks about the power of the right kind of fat in oh, yeah. in baking because oh. it's very depending on what you're going for flaky soft light chewy crispy that's all gonna kind of guide and you have a great great chapter on how to know what kind of fat to use and why but yeah share um, a couple recipes would you oh happily um so one of my favorite things to make all year long and definitely all throughout the summer is um is to is to do this process called confiting vegetables and so Really, it's sort of a um, bastardization of making, um, you know, duck confit, which back in the, which comes from the mountains of southwest France, which was a way of preserving duck um, in its own fat and for the future. 
And so duck would get very slowly cooked in duck fat and then preserved in that duck fat. And so it was sort of always available. You'd keep it down in the basement and go pull it out and then come crisp it up. And it's super delicious. And sort of there's a way to translate that to um, vegetable cooking. And my very favorite version of it is cherry tomato confit. So what you do is you get olive oil and you have to use kind of a generous amount. <laughs> and um, and so I'll do it in a, in, a, in a shallow baking dish and pour maybe, um, I don't know, maybe like less than less than the first notch of my index finger worth of olive oil in there and then put a single layer of cherry tomatoes and some salt and a few garlic cloves and basil leaves and then you just cook it very 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 slowly in the oven maybe 250 degrees or or a little bit higher till just the faintest sort of simmer bubbles are happening but um, it should never boil and you cook it for quite a long time for cherry tomatoes it's about 35 minutes or 40 minutes until they're all the way cooked through and very very tender and um, and almost to the point where if you touch it, it'll explode. And so the orbs of the cherry tomatoes become this ready-made sauce almost where you can bring it out and spoon it over a piece of grilled fish or grilled chicken, or I love tossing it with pasta. And the minute you toss it and bring it to your table and, and sort of like stab it with your fork, the tomatoes explode and create this ready-made sauce. And they're so sweet. And the fat also becomes this great tool where you can use it again a second time. You can use it to make a delicious salad dressing. You can um, and you and you can also use it in the in the dish itself. You know, as part of the as part of the dressing. So wow. that one's a great one because the oil has this amazing capacity to not you know just like it can get very hot if you keep the temperature steady and low, it can stay nice and low, and that way um, the tomatoes have plenty of time to cook through at a nice slow rate. Amazing. And then, uh, oh, yes, oh, yes. Oh, I'm just going to remind like people, Shasamin Nasrat is with me. So give us a give us an idea uh, of how fat can be used uh, in a in a really delicious or helpful way in baking. Yeah. So one of my so my my parents came to Southern California from Iran, and um, when my mom was growing up in Iran, the um, it had very sort of a Parisian feel. Tehran did, and and there were a lot of French pastry shops and French bakeries. So for her, European pastries and and baked goods are sort of the the pinnacle and so for our birthdays she would all she found this like very great european bakery in san diego and she would buy us these very beautiful very very dense chocolate cakes that were sort of um yeah they were like very frenchy and (laughs) and um maybe because you always as a kid want the thing that you don't have (laughs) you know my mom had gone to these great lengths to buy these very fancy and expensive cakes and really all i ever wanted was like the cake mix cakes that everybody else had (laughs) (laughs) and so i developed this sort of i don't know what the word would be like reverse nostalgia for um for the taste and the texture of a cake mix cake, which always to me seemed so moist and light and fluffy. And I became obsessed with trying to create that in, in a cake that I made from scratch, but I could never get it right. And this was, you know, in the 90s, I don't know if you remember, but there was a period where there, just all the chocolate cakes were flourless chocolate cakes or yeah. and chocolate cakes, like very, yeah. very rich and dense. And so this just seemed kind of like this impossible dream to me. And when I started working at Chez Panisse, um, one day one of the cooks made a birthday cake for another cook. She brought it in, and it was this beautiful chocolate cake that she slathered with whipped cream. And we all sang happy birthday, and she passed out slices. And I took a bite, and this was the cake that I had been after, you know, my whole life. Mm. And I couldn't believe it wasn't a cake. It was just it was so good. I couldn't believe it wasn't a cake mix, but it also tasted way better than a cake mix because it had clearly been made with superior ingredients. And so I asked her, I begged her for the recipe and she gave it to me. And, um, 
it turns out it's very, very similar to the recipe on the side of the Hershey's cocoa box, which is just cocoa and sugar and, you know, boiling water and flour and some baking powder, basically. Um, and so I, I made it a few times and I got really excited. And then a few weeks later at Chez Panisse, they have, they have this ginger cake that they have every year, especially in the fall time. It's a very moist and delicious ginger and molasses cake. And so I begged the pastry chefs for that recipe as well. And they gave it to me. And same thing. It was a cake made with oil and water. And I, it started to occur to me that also I loved carrot cake, which always, almost always is made with oil. And I was like, oh, there's something to this. And of course, cake mix cakes are just add oil, right? You add an mm -hmm. egg and oil and water. And so it was this way where I started to realize those rich, dense cakes that I had always been sort of averse to were butter cakes whereas these light, tender, moist cakes were oil cakes. And it, was, it became this mnemonic device for me that was really helpful where even before I understood any of the science or anything, I could just open a magazine if I got, you know, I don't know, gourmet magazine in the mail, I could open it and look at the cake recipe and know that the cake, what kind of texture it would have, whether it was made with oil or butter. And so um, I got to delve a little bit into that and learn about why oil, you know, because water, because butter has a little bit of water in it, depending on how you work it into uh, the flour for a cake and into the batter, it can really um, sort of develop gluten. And developing gluten is what makes things chewy or flaky or um, or even, well, not I was going to say crumbly, but chewy or flaky usually or dense. And um, because oil is just pure fat, and if you mix it in in this right order, your cake won't have the chance to really develop that gluten. And so it'll emerge from the oven much more light and, and tender. And it was this amazing thing where I reverse figured that out, you know, just because of my obsession with Betty Crocker cake mix. <laughs> yeah. And now you've given us all the secrets. So we don't have to, we don't have to labor quite as hard. Uh, Samin Nasrat is with me. Her book is Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, Mastering the Elements of Good Cooking. If you can master those four things, you can cook without a recipe or you can feel free to, to, to improvise and know that what you're doing is going to get you the result you're looking for. So Chef Nasrat, we have established that salt enhances flavor, fat distributes and amplifies flavor and also has a big role to play in texture. Now, acid, what is the role of acid in cooking? Oh, man, acid's so important. It balances flavors, and um, it, it offers us contrast. One of the things that I learned while I was working on this book that was so interesting to me was that as humans, we're sort of um, biologically wired to, to love and seek out contrasts with our senses, and so there's a way where if you, and this extends absolutely to when we're eating, and we even derive pleasure from foods that are, have contrasts, whether they're um, with texture or flavor or temperature. So if you think, you know, putting um, breadcrumbs on top of soft macaroni and cheese, or um, we love to have sweet and sour things, or salty and sweet things, or um, very rich and creamy things that are topped with something light and acidic and bright. And so what acid does is it really offers that contrast and helps things keep things from falling flat, especially foods that, um, that sort of wander into the dangerous territory of blandness, mm. things, things that are, could be very, very rich or um, very, very starchy and bland or just very dense. Acid brings brightness, which is really important. Brightness. That's so interesting. You write about having made a carrot soup at Chez Panisse and it had all, you know, it had the onions and the carrots and the butter and the cream and you like all of this richness. And you thought you'd gotten it just right. And the chef tasted it. And he said, add a cap full of vinegar before you bring it out. How, how on earth could 
one little cap full of vinegar make any difference? I don't, you know, I, it's one of those things sort of like with saltiness, how, how using the right amount of salt is about using just enough so that it's seasoned but not salty. Certainly the same is true for acid where you just want to use enough so that it perks things up, but your food should never taste sour. And that was really a big awakening for me was this idea that even a carrot soup, which is so sweet and rich and creamy, could need vinegar. It just seemed crazy to me, you know? <laughs> and then um, until I did what he told me to do, I took a, sp- and I didn't even trust him. I didn't even add the capful at first. I <laughs> took a spoonful and I just added one drop and it was amazing. It was like a prism, you know, in my mouth where suddenly all of these other flavors became available to me and it was no longer just sort of this flat, sweet thing. There was suddenly a little bit of, there was contrast really is what it was. And so I started to understand that, um, Acid is something that that a lot of times we need. And, you know, I think Thanksgiving is a really good example of uh, how, how we all are innately drawn toward acid, even if we don't know. And acid is kind of this, like, clinical word, I think, that it kind of freaks people out a little bit at first. But the great example of Thanksgiving is that it's this table laden with all these rich and, and very starchy things and, and creamy things and... Um, and yet almost always the first thing to go is the cranberry sauce because it's the only <laughs> source of acid on most tables where it's the thing that perks everything up. Right. So lemon juice, vinegar, wine are pretty common sources of acid in cooking. There are lots of other options. Share an example, a recipe, would you, that would teach us an important lesson about acid? Oh, sure. Um, you know, I think I love making braises. I think that they're really very um, friendly and easy to make. And you can kind of throw it in the oven and forget about it until it's tender. They're very forgiving. But in my experience, we're so um, intent on building flavor in braises and making things brown and rich and delicious that we that if you don't if you aren't careful to work acid in early, um, then you'll really sort of taste that and things will fall flat at the end. So one braise that I really love making is. Um, long-cooked pork shoulder that I'll I'll sort of shred and turn into tacos. And so from the very beginning, you know, I'm browning that pork, I'm browning the vegetables that I'm putting in there, but also I want to make sure that I'm going to balance all of that sweetness that comes with the browning with some acid. So um, usually if I'm making Mexican kind of flavors, I'll use a beer, which is a little bit acidic, and I'll put some tomatoes in there, two forms of acid. And those cook and really mellow and come together over the course of the hours that the pork spends in the oven. And then comes all the fun part of the garnishing, what I call the garnishing acid. So afterward, you take it out and you shred it. And this is the thing that we all, you know, everyone who's listening will be familiar with this, which is you make your taco or you make your burrito, and then you get to use all of the condiments, (laughs) all the garnishes. Salsa, limes. Exactly. Limes and avocado that's rich with, you know, salt and lime and um, salsa. You know, salsa is a beautiful sort of form of all of that kind of stuff. And cheese even. Cheese is is in my mind the holy trinity of salt, fat, and acid. So all of the garnishes that, you know, for me at my house, my refrigerator door is just filled with like 20 different kinds of hot sauce and mustard and all those, and even mayonnaise and all of these things, what they do is they help us balance our food in that last moment right before we eat it, where if we've ideally done the work of working in acids early, we have a good foundation, but then you get to do the sort of fun part of I don't know, grating the cheese over or spooning the salsa or the sour cream. Is there also, though, finally something to be aware of when it comes to acid? It it seems like with marinades, on the one hand, it can make your meat soft, but then it can also make it tough somehow. I don't even know how that works. Yeah, it's 
it's a fine line, absolutely. So again, returning back to that buttermilk chicken, what's great is that the um, buttermilk sort of um, functions as this beautiful, both as a brine, you know, with the salt and the water in the buttermilk helps to plump up the chicken and get it really moist. But the acid in the buttermilk, what that does is it helps to tenderize the meat. And there isn't a ton of acid in there, so it's not it's not too um, affecting, but if you, a good way to sort of imagine what happens to, to a piece of fish over the course of time from it becoming um, tartar, say, into ceviche. So if you mix up some chopped up tuna with some herbs and shallots and lime juice and eat it right away, that's tuna tartar. But if you let it sit for a really long time, even 30 minutes or 40 minutes, and you come back, all of a sudden the um, acid has sort of interacted with the proteins to make, to make the meat more firm. And that's, sort of this it's analogous to the same um thing that happens in 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 the flesh when you cook it which is why sometimes we say you know you can cook cook foods with um with acid so it is something to be mindful of because if if meat sits in a marinade too long it can become mushy and then and then also overly firm so it's sort of about finding the right balance and to me actually the thing that helps to tenderize the meat more than acid is salt because that works with the proteins uh it sort of dissolves proteins into a gel which helps uh things to be really tender and soft in there again so we've got the salt enhancing the flavor the fat distributing and amplifying the flavor acid balancing the flavor all working together as three legs of the table and then you've got heat what's the power of heat in the equation. Oh, man. Heat is amazing. <laughs> I mean, heat is cooking, right? And so, and the thing that was really the light bulb moment for me was understanding that really good cooks, you know, all throughout the world, no matter where they are, not only in fancy kitchens, they're not really paying attention to the number on the dial. And um, what they're paying attention to is the way that the food is reacting to the heat. And so that gives them this ability to be very flexible and use, you know, if there's not space on the stovetop, they can use the oven in the same way. Or sometimes at Chez Panisse, what we would do if we didn't have room on the stovetop is we would build a fire in the fireplace and then just cook place pots over the grates and use that just like as if it were a a stove. And so you start to understand what you're looking for is um, for your food to react in the way that you want it to. And a really easy mnemonic device that I use in my head is that most foods are either tough and you want to make them tender with cooking or they're tender and you want your best to keep them tender. So if you just think of like two different cuts of beef, that's a, it's a pretty easy to think about. Where if you think of a perfect filet mignon, that's already tender. So your job when you're cooking it is, not to, is to not overcook it, to get it nice and brown and seared on the outside without overcooking it so you retain that tenderness. So again, Whereas, you're starting from the end point. What do I want this to be? Tender? <laughs> do I want exactly. it to harden? And then, and then if it's already tender, what is the, the heat secret? to keeping it tender while still cooking it? Almost always for very tender things, you just want to cook them very quickly over high heat. So that's what I call intense heat. And again, the source of heat is not what's important. So it might happen in the oven at 500 degrees. It might happen over very hot coals on the grill, or it could happen in a very, very hot cast iron pan. And then on the other end of the spectrum is our foods that need to, for, which, uh, from which we need to coax out the tenderness. And so you could imagine, um, in contrast to the filet mignon, you could imagine short ribs, which are very gristly and tough and need a lot of time and, and careful tending to, to become tender. Um, and that involves really low and gentle heat, which again could come from any source of heat. It could come from even a dying fire, you know, where a lot of times in Italy they would sort of use the um, baker's oven at the end of the day 
with no, without adding any extra fuel, they would just sort of stick a braise in the oven and let the residual heat cook the meat through overnight. So that's one way. Or you could do it on the stove as long as it's just kept at a simmer and not really gone, going above that. Or the same thing where you could put it in the oven, pe- cover it with a piece of foil, and, and put it in there in a low temperature. Hmm. That really is, uh, it's, that's one of the things that I, f- I feel like if I don't have it on a recipe, if it doesn't tell me bake at 450 <laughs> or on medium heat, I feel like I don't, I can't start. I'm 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 lost. I mean, well, my hope is that I'll give you enough clues, you know, in throughout the with the book to help you sort of hold your hands and get you there. But you know, something that really gave me a lot of courage was realizing that most people's ovens are really miscalibrated, Mm. and (laughs) and um, and also that once I understood how ovens and thermostats in ovens worked, I realized that. The number sort of is meaningless because that the temperature is just constantly rotating. I remember I had this sort of big light bulb moment one day when um, once a week when I was an intern, I would help on the pastry side at Chez Panisse, and I always had the same task of making slice and bake cookies. And, um, you know, they, they were very, very, like, uh, they watched over me. They micromanaged me to make sure I did it just right, and I baked them just right. And I always had the same chef. And then one day that chef was sick, and so then somebody else came. And I had always baked them at 350. And then the, this um, sort of uh, the fill-in chef told me to bake it at 325. And I had the same sort of moment where I was like, wait a minute, for weeks I've been cooking this at 350, and now you're telling me 325? I felt like she had pulled the rug out from under me. And she said, oh, it's okay. I just think of 325 as a more forgiving version of 350. It gives me an extra minute, you know, in case I, in case I, for, and I don't have time to get there. And I started to realize, you know, it isn't really that big of a difference for things like that. 25 degrees usually here or there won't make a huge difference. It's about understanding what's happening in the food and being able to sort of know that there's essentially high and low temperatures, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Finally, before we I have a few wrap-up questions for you, but on this topic of heat, could you name for us an underappreciated cooking method? Oh, man. I think the most underappreciated cooking method is simmering, you know, boiling. Hmm. I think people really think of that as like the lowest, most boring thing. <laughs> and to me, uh, if I, especially on days when I can make it to the farmer's market or if I just find like a particularly nice bunch of carrots or, or kind of fresh broccoli, or I have a little garden, so if I get something out of the garden, um, boiling, I think, almost is the most pure and gentle form of cooking. And so if you just keep that water at a boil and make sure there's plenty of salt in there, the things can emerge anything can emerge really sweet and tender and quite delicious. So the salt is the key to keeping the flavors and the nutrients from leaching out? Yes, especially for vegetables, because what salt is, is it's a mineral. And, you know, all of those nutrients, not all of them, but many of the nutrients are also minerals. And so by creating a mineral rich environment on um, on the outside on the cook in the cooking water minerals will be less likely to leach out of the the green beans you're cooking or the carrots and stay in in your food and they'll, it'll stay brighter and more delicious chef Nasret would you say a word or two for us about the the idea of balancing the overall meal because dishes that we cook rarely exist alone <laughs> they're going to be yeah. eaten with something else yeah, I mean, this is one of those basic things that, again, no one really explains to you as a, as a baby cook, and then you one day start realizing, oh, they're not serving pasta and cake in the same meal. And so there's a way to sort of take a step back and look at your whole meal and try not only to achieve, you know, salt and fat and balance or an acid balance in a dish, but also in a meal as a whole. So sometimes people will say to me, well, 
you know, you made the soup with just, um, I don't know, corn and water and butter, but there's no acid in it. And I, I'll say, well, that's okay. You know, the soup itself was rich, but we, we followed it with a nice, bright, light salad. And so there's a way where every, it's kind of about balance and, kind, and being aware at all times of where you're going. So my funny story about this is um, one time I was, I was helping Alice Waters cook a big dinner, and we, we all made this big salad, and we served it, and it had been really hot in the kitchen, so the cooks just stood around in the, in the kitchen eating the leftover salad and feeling you know very refreshed, and we felt it was the most delicious salad we'd ever had. And then Alice walked in, and she said, mm, the salad could have used some more acid. And we were shocked because to us it was so delicious. And, and we, we kind of pressed back against her and she said, no, you're not the ones who are at the table. You know, I was the one who was eating this dinner and there was a really rich lasagna followed by a really rich, you know, lamb dish with very creamy beans. And so all I wanted after that was a really, really bright salad that had a really mustardy vinaigrette that perked everything up. And so... And, of course, she was right. And um, there's a way where you have to have sort of the macro vision and the micro vision at the same time. You talk about anchoring the meal, figuring out what the anchor will be in that macro vision. How do you – what is an anchor? How do you find uh, it? The anchor can be – it could be an ingredient. So say you open your fridge and you have a chicken in there. That could be your anchor that you build the whole meal around. Or it could be if you're craving, I don't know, to make Mexican food or Thai food – then the spices of that culture could be your anchor that then you decide how to navigate a meal through through that. Or it could just be how much time you have. If you know that you don't have a lot of time, then you wouldn't choose to, I say, braise short ribs. You would make the right choice and cook the right kind of meat um, or, or anything that would cook quickly. So it's about making the right decisions for um, the boundaries that you have and that you set for yourself. And that will really help you move forward um, but a lot of times I've noticed with people who um, are not professional cooks, you know, they maybe are so inspired by flipping through the pages of a magazine or through the pages of a cookbook and see something that they really want to make, and they'll choose three or four things that they really love or the idea of, but they wouldn't add up to a really great meal because it's maybe too rich or, or maybe not too filling enough. And there, the advice I have for you there is, you know, there's a way where – we, we seem to be in a different mode when we go out to eat than we are when, we, when, when we're building a menu for ourselves at home. But most people wouldn't go to a restaurant and order, you know, all their favorite things just because they happen to be on there. You wouldn't get pizza and fried chicken and chocolate cake and the milkshake, you know, and a Caesar salad because it's just it's too much. There's a way where I find that most people have, a, have an ability to build a menu, um, build a nice dinner for themselves off of a restaurant's menu that they don't necessarily always apply um, to home cooking. So maybe if you just sort of start thinking about it like that, that could be helpful. Samin Nosrat is a chef and a food writer. Her book and Netflix series are both called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Thanks for listening today. I've got another favorite interview from the Top of Mind Daily Radio Show archives for you next week. It is about a woman who grew up believing she was white, only to realize as an adult that her parents had been lying to her. She's actually half black. This interview made me question all of my assumptions about race and identity. I think you'll find it fascinating, too. At least I hope so. So join us for that conversation next week in another special episode of Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.